This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in. We are in Hebrews chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. This is Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And so this is the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, and in the writer's final thoughts, he's inspired to speak of hospitality, he's inspired to speak of brethren, uh, Christians who are in prison, he talks about marriage, he talks about the unchanging nature of Jesus and sacrifice and submission to elders. He's hitting a whole lot of different notes and making a whole lot of different points here. And so we're just going to take each thought and meditate upon it uh, through this through this study as we conclude this study of Hebrews. So let's just go back up to verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 13, where he says, Let love of the brethren continue. And specifically, he talks about hospitality. If you continue, continue reading there, not neglecting to show hospitality to, to strangers. And so we can be hospitable and should be hospitable by opening our homes to brethren who are passing through town or who may come some distance to uh, hear the gospel or maybe relatives of uh, another family. So it, it, it doesn't mean the context doesn't demand this random, you know, kind of just letting anyone in, into your home because of verse one. He's talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ specifically. Now we want to certainly be kind and consider it to all people and, and be helpful to all people as we can, uh, as we have opportunity rather. But um, but the context here specifically is talking about love of the brethren and demonstrating this kind of hospitality and consideration to uh, brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And so we can't neglect this. This is something in the Word of God that that is important to God. And notice also he talks about in verse 3, those who are in prison specifically says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And so it's more than just a, a thought here and here, here and there that he's encouraging, you know, or, a, uh, you, you know, just a checking in on somebody, which, you know, those are things that we should do. And we should let people know we're thinking about them and praying for them. Uh, but look at the level of sympathy he's saying uh, he's calling us to have here as though you're in prison with them. Treat them as if you were there with them that, and, and consider how you would be in that situation with them and how your body would be suffering and how there you would be um, have, have pain and, and, and need what's necessary to sustain you. Um, so that's the kind of sympathy and consideration he's calling us to have for one another. And then he moves into talking about marriage in verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And so as he moves in here, you know, this one verse is a sermon that indicts the whole the whole world. Um, you know, the world would have us believe that premarital or extramarital sex is romantic or can be romantic and fun and exciting. But verse 4 of Hebrews 13 is flatly contradicting those teachings and those ideas. And it's calling those behaviors and the desire for those behaviors what they are. They're, they're sin. And will bring about condemnation. No matter how much we are 
blitzed by TV shows and movies that want to impress upon us that sex is a casual thing meant to be enjoyed by all people at any time, for any reason, with anyone, the truth of God still stands. That the marriage bed, so he's talking about the sexual relationship, is to be undefiled. It's to be kept pure. And God does not have any tolerance for uh, uh, sexual immorality for fornicators and adulterers he's going to to judge so no one can just parade his or her body around for a thrill we need to soberly and confidently say that's corruption that is corruption of God's design that's sinful that's shameful that man has taken a beautiful gift of God and perverted and debased it into something cheap and tawdry Marriage, the marriage covenant was instituted by God and, and all that that entails and the blessings that that entails of physical intimacy. As we're thinking about specifically here in this context, he's saying even that should be held in the highest honor. And so this means not only respecting the limitations of the covenant itself, but also understanding that no one is too good for marriage, as is sometimes taught in the religious world or that the choice to remain celibate uh, or unmarried gives somebody a, a superior kind of purity or holiness above other Christians. Such attitudes also dishonor marriage and in a different way, you might say from a different angle. But nevertheless, First Peter four, uh, excuse me, First Timothy four three makes it clear that 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 kind of attitude or the forbidding of marriage is uh, evil. It's called out as evil there. And um, and that's all I'll say about that. So verse 5 now, uh, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. So we're warned repeatedly against covetousness in Scripture. You know, like all sin, it is deceitful. And some may place their hope and confidence and wealth, but ultimately it will not provide genuine peace and happiness. Job says in Job thirty-one twenty-four, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, that too would have been an iniquity, calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. And Scripture characterizes covetousness as an insatiable sin. Solomon says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity, Ecclesiastes 5.10. So those who pursue it with total abandon, they're never satisfied. But spending increasing amounts of time and energy chasing something that leaves them unfulfilled and their souls in ruin and lost. And that's uh, this principle true not just of the love of money or covetousness, but with all sin. All sin has that same effect and, and consequence. Um, 1 Timothy 1 Excuse me, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that those who want to get rich, notice he says, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And I think at least part of the point is certainly what we've already mentioned, but Paul seems to be saying too that it's kind of a gateway to many other sins. All kinds of foolish and harmful desires that bring about destruction. He says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So instead of providing happiness, 
it robs people of it, right? If we're looking for ultimate ha- happiness and satisfaction in things or specifically money, um, it, like all sin, is going to ensnare and tangle us up in an endless cycle where we're just perpetually un- unsatisfied. Uh, maybe we enjoy some passing pleasures for a while, but there's no lasting permanent joy. We're always got to be craving more and having more and, and uh, you know, doing whatever we can, give, giving ourselves our time and our bodies and energy to, to getting more. We're just spent. When the Bible is saying we just need to be content with what we have here, with what God has provided for us, and that ultimately Christians have the greatest possession one could ever ask for, God himself, a God who will never leave us or forsake us. And that's the very next point that the Hebrew writer makes in, in verse 5 of chapter 13. For God himself and right, right on the heels of saying, keep yourself free from the love of money, he says, for God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right. So that that's to give us perspective. That's to keep us content. That we have the greatest possession that anybody could ever ask for. And he will never remove his presence from us or his help. And then he changes gears a little bit in, in verse 7 as he he calls us to remember uh, those great spiritual leaders of our past, you know, who, who led us and taught us in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And, and this can refer, I think, to any number of godly examples who teach the truth. But it most likely refers to elders in the context because of what he says in in verse 17 about those who watch over our souls and those who as those who will give an account that's specifically the work of uh, overseers or bishops or elders as they're defined in the new testament so some think that you know the the tr- tradition of churches to honor and venerate uh, deceased christians was born out of a misguided zeal to apply this teaching maybe there's something to that i don't know there's no legitimate new testament pattern wherein we can pray to you know an angel or pray to a Christian who's departed from this life to intercede for us or give them some sort of worship. Um, that's and that's certainly not what this verse is speaking about here. Um, there but there is authority here to take special note of and what that's what we should do, take special note of exemplary men and women and that we may imitate their example, right? Consider their example and the result of their conduct and imitate their their faith. So that's not saying elevate brethren to a place they have no business being, but he, he don't make any more or less of that than Scripture is. Consider their good example for your own good, um, and 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 do do the best you can to imitate it. In so far as they were faithful to the Lord. So again, elders are specifically mentioned in verse seventeen. And the tremendous responsibility that they have who watch over the souls of, of Christians in local church, in the local church arrangement. And we're to make their job easier by submitting to their judgment regarding expedient matters and certainly doing our best to uh, avoid sin uh, and not be chronic complainers and grumbling against you know every little thing. Uh, as much as we may like the democratic way, you know that's not God's design for the local church, and decisions are not made by majority vote. And the writer talks about again, verse seventeen: "Let them do this with joy." Uh, this being 
you know, overseeing your souls and as those who are going to give account, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so he's talking about show them, you know, show them gratitude and appreciate, encourage them by telling them you appreciate their hard work uh, in addition to all other responsibilities. And, you know, most elderships, most elders, at least that I've encountered in my life, they um, serve in that capacity without any kind of uh, monetary recompense, even though biblically they have authority to receive that. And so there may be times when, you know, they spend sleepless nights agonizing over a decision that must be made regarding a brother or sister who's fallen away or, um, you know, church discipline or, and things like this. And we can, we can, Christians who are not elders can be a tremendous encouragement to them, or we can make a difficult time even worse. And that's the last thing we want, right? He, verse 17, this would be unprofitable for you. And the way I read that is what he's saying is that nobody, nobody wins here. It's, it's going to be detrimental for everyone. Everyone loses when the the leadership of a local church is discouraged and frustrated, and the whole church is just ultimately going to be weaker for it. And then finally, verses 15 and 21, um, through him then, the writer says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So praise and thanksgiving, openly confessing God's name, sharing our goods with others. All these things that he's mentioning here in the context, context have to be offered through Christ. And I wanted to seize upon that point there. Uh, through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So God cannot be praised or worshipped any way that we desire, but it must be done through Christ. It's impossible apart from Jesus and His will. And then finally, verse 21, May God equip you in every good thing to do His will. That's what God wants for all of His people. He wants to... Uh, make them better servants. He wants to equip his people to to do his will through his word. And it alone contains all that we will ever need to know about how to be pleasing to him. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That all of it is breathed out by him specifically for that purpose, for reproof and correction and training and righteousness. So that why? So that every man can be complete, equipped for every good work. And so his word can make us complete and thoroughly equip us to do every good work. We can't forget that. We just simply have to trust it. We don't need anything else. Well, that's what I want to leave you with. I appreciate you tuning in and going through this series uh, with me. It's been a great study for me. I hope hope it has been for you as well. Uh, please continue to pray about these things and feel free to contact uh, me at Leon Valley Church at gmail.com. If you have a study for a new series or suggestion for a Bible topic you would like to hear discussed, I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Faithful Sayings.